Hi everyone, producer Susie here. We greatly appreciate your support listening to Astronomy Cast. And we'd like to ask another small favor you can do to support our work. Just go over and subscribe for free to our CosmoQuest channel at www.youtube.com slash C slash CosmoQuest. And while you're there, subscribe to Fraser Kane's channel too, so you can check out his guide to space. Thank you. Astronomy Cast, episode 538, Asteroids, the rubble piles of the solar system. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. With me, as always, Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hi, Pamela. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Great. I had a chance. I, I'm writing a review right now, but I got a, had a chance to play with just an amazing piece of technology. And so I thought our good friends at Astronomy Cast would, would want to hear about this. It's called the Stellina, S-T-E-L-L-I-N-A, and it comes from France. And it looks like the gun from Portal. So it looks like this, you know... You, are you still there? You know, um, and it is about, I guess, about the size of a gun from Portal anyway, but it's a telescope and 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 it unfolds. So what you do is you take it outside, you set it up just anywhere kind of flat and then it unfolds into telescope mode, takes looks at the sky, figures out its location on Earth from GPS, figures out the um, uh like what it's seeing on the sky, like figures out w where it's oriented, takes a picture, autofocuses, and then goes ready. And then you take your phone and then you say, okay, let's take a picture of M51. Let's take a picture of the Andromeda galaxy. Let's take a picture of the great globular cluster in Hercules or the ring nebula or whatever you want. And it just does it. And it just like on your phone, every 10 seconds, a better and better version of the image pops up until you've had enough and it is it's an astonishing piece of technology like just absolutely incredible absolutely the future and absolutely should not be taken as a carry-on on an airplane because some tsa person is going to think it is a gun turret from portal yeah exactly it's you'd you could probably you know pack it in your luggage but uh but incredible and it works like that's the part like i was really skeptical and ready to just you know uh pan it pan it yeah but it just it really totally works you know the images are not as good as if you sit you know buy all the separate parts and build a proper astrophotography rig but you know what they say with cameras you know the the best camera is the one you're going to use yeah and this is the astrophotography rig that you're going to use you're going to take it outside you're going to set it up you're going to take pictures and I was I was really impressed, and I I'm looking forward to doing my review. And it's funny because you know people are asking me like, how big is the lens? And like, it doesn't matter. How big is the camera? Who cares? Doesn't matter, right? I don't know. It's like bigger than uh, a roll of paper towel, kind of, but smaller than a stovepipe. I don't know. <laughs> right? Okay. The point is. Photographs of the night sky better than anything you'll ever see through the eyepiece of a telescope show up on your phone and you save them and you share them to social media. And you won't get on a pod, 
but you will have taken pictures of any object that you could possibly want. So I'm, uh, I'm quite And I bet you impressed. could get on APOD, just not for the most beautiful photo. It's for yeah. the most in the moment photo. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm quite impressed. And I, w I can't wait for this f modern future where you don't have to spend all evening apologizing to all your friends because you're trying to set up the telescope and it's not working. You can't polar align it and the camera doesn't work and you don't have the drivers. You got to reinstall them. Anyway, yeah, of course, it I've costs $4,000. So, you know, which, you know, if you can buy an astrophotography rig, that's how much you're going to spend. It, it's only the cost pictures. of four iPhones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you bought four iPhones. Come on. All right. Um, let's uh, let's get on with this this week's episode. Thanks to all the work from Hayabusa 2 and Osiris Rex, astronomers are getting a much better look at the smaller asteroids in the solar system. It turns out they're piles of rubble, but fascinating piles of rubble. Let's talk about what we've learned so far. Pamela, you were right there on the front lines as we were looking at images of of um, Bennu. Bennu, and thanks to Osiris Rex, and like it's just a pile of it's just a pile of gravel. Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the sad things that we discovered is our rock is only slightly denser than water, which means it's not one rock. It is a myriad of rocks loosely held together with gaps between the stones. And, and I don't know about you, but like I've heard of rubble pile asteroids and in my mind, rubble pile asteroids were like, take a regular asteroid, hit it, and it falls apart into like five or six pieces. And those five or six pieces come back together, no big deal. It's still mostly a solid object, kind of dusty as a few boulders, no big deal. And Bennu was just like, no, not gonna, not gonna be that asteroid. Ryugu, no, not gonna do it. These are two objects that both look like D&D dice that have had the worst days of their lives. They, they are that kind of hexagonal shape that you're used to from dice, but they're made of millions of meter to many meter across rocks that have come together, very, very little dust, lots of variation in color. And they're just hanging out going, hey, you need to rethink everything you thought about how to deflect an asteroid headed towards Earth. All right, so what was everything that we thought? Well, so what we knew is, is when you look out towards the asteroid belt, you see these, what we call families of asteroids. There's the Hygieia family, the Coronis family, the Themis family, the Vesta family, the Ceres family, the Unamaya family, and I'm mispronouncing half of these, and I'm so sorry. Um, all of these families of asteroids come about from having one big main body, so Ceres, Vesta, to give you a couple that we've imaged really well. And over time, these main bodies have been hit over and over and over with other asteroids. Or a spaceship flying or through with its little laser going dip, 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 and breaking the asteroids into smaller pieces. For those of you who remember playing those video yep. games when you were small. Yep. Um, and, and so this leaves behind a main asteroid and a bunch of smaller ones all around it, forming a family of stuff that's made of the exact same composition. 
And, and based on seeing this, we imagined that there might be out there some asteroids that had been pretty much completely obliterated, but temporarily. The, the energy that went into shattering the object wasn't sufficient to send pieces, or at least send all the pieces out at escape velocities. So a large portion of, of the former object or objects gravitationally came back together. And I don't know why in my head these objects were always made of giant pieces. I guess in, in my thinking, if they were made of tiny pieces, those tiny pieces would be way easier to fling off in all directions. Think Alderaan getting blown apart. And I right. was so very wrong. So very wrong. Yeah, I mean, you've got to deliver the the amount of energy to release the binding energy of the whole asteroid. And whether it cracks into four pieces and they sort of spread apart for a little while and then they crunch back together again, or just like a whole bunch of just gravel. This episode of Astronomy Cast is sponsored by BarkBox. For a free extra month of BarkBox, visit BarkBox.com astronomy when you subscribe to a six or 12 month plan. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I love BarkBox in a way that has nothing to do with them being our sponsor. I have two Australian Shepherds with two very different sets of likes and dislikes, and BarkBox has high quality toys and treats to fit their every want and need. My puppy Stella is the household evildoer. And she loves nothing more than shredding toys. And with BarkBox, I can get toys meant to be shred. One of my favorites was a cocoon that came apart to reveal a butterfly. For Eddie, well, he just likes to cuddle. And for him, there are soft, washable toys to love. Each themed BarkBox comes with a couple toys, grain-free treats perfect for training, and a larger, high-quality, U.S.-made shoe for when you just need your dog to be busy for a few minutes. There is over $40 of doggy goodness in each box. And with a subscription, the boxes start at $22 each. Make your dogs as happy as my dogs and visit BarkBox.com astronomy and get a free extra month of BarkBox when you subscribe to a six or a 12 month plan. So, so then, like, I'm imagining you've got these two asteroids on a collision course with, with each other. They smash into each other, and they just obliterate into, yeah. because of the amount of energy that's involved, into just gravel, like just rubble. But then that rubble is gravitationally bound to each other. So you've got this cloud of gravel that's floating through space, and it's got... Nothing better to do but to reaccumulate under its own gravity into this just whatever is the most, the best shape. And it turns out to be, of course, it's Dungeons and Dragons eight sided dice or maybe 10 sided dice. Exactly. And this also tells us something about the energies of what happens. When, when our own Earth was slammed into by a Mars-sized object, the two objects essentially melted down, obliterated each other, a giant splash occurred that formed the moon, everything else recoalesced back into forming the Earth, and we went from a Mars-sized object and a smaller-than-current Earth-sized object that recombined, reconfigured all of their stuffs and became two new objects that were solid objects. But with asteroids, 
they're smaller. You don't have as much of a binding energy to overcome. You're dealing with shattering rocks, basically, and not having to worry as much about these objects being gravitationally held together. Um, so you overcome that chemical energy. It's essentially hitting it with a giant space-sized hammer. And these pieces aren't molten. These pieces are just broken apart like a boulder. Yeah. And this all sounds so very non-exciting until you're trying to figure out how to land on one of these objects and until you start realizing that this process essentially turned things inside out and got rid of all of the dust and small objects and just left you with a pile of grossness. So let's talk about this, this, this complexity of attempting to land, to find a spot that one might choose to land on the surface of one of these small objects, which of course you were right on the front lines of helping to figure that out. So what was the, you know, what are the complications that have been added to the whole process now? Well, originally, uh, both the Hayabusa 2 team and the OSIRIS-REx team assumed that their objects would look sort of like Itakawa, Eos, uh, Eros, rather, one of these other smaller bodies that we've imaged before that have vast areas of nice, beautiful, smooth, undisturbed surfaces. And that we'd be able to look at our object and find in a nice, easy to reach um, kinematically not difficult place, one of these nice, large, beautiful, smooth places. And we wanted a nice big area because, well, these objects are rotating, they don't have a whole lot of gravity, and trying to get down to their surface requires our spacecraft to match the rotational rate of the spacecraft, or sorry, the rotational rate of the asteroid and come in to contact with the surface long enough to grab a sample through whatever means the various spacecraft are using and take back off and do all of this without harming the spacecraft, both of which have large solar panels. Now, there's gonna be error in coming in for any landing. We have this whole concept of a landing ellipse, which we've gotten used to from watching Mars landings, where we say, we expect our thing to land in this area of Gale Crater, for instance, with the Curiosity lander. Well, with our landing ellipses on both Hayabusa and Ryugu, with our original plans, sorry, with Ryugu and Bennu, with our original plans, um, these landing ellipses were designed to keep our solar panels nice and safe and they were nice and large, lots of wiggle room. And neither object had a smooth, flat surface anywhere. Anywhere, yeah. Anywhere. There were none. Right. None. Yeah. I, I sort of imagine like trying to find, imagine trying to have a picnic on the big island of Hawaii's lava field. Yeah. And you're just like, where should we sit down? Where should we sit down and spread out our um, blanket and have a nice picnic on this jumble of razor sharp lava everywhere? And it's, there's no place, you know, and, yeah. and this was the challenge. So, you know, now that you guys have finished mapping the surface of Bennu, like how bad is it? How many even areas can they even possibly land? 
Well, we, we've identified four potential sample sites that are now being uh, imaged in even higher detail. And, and the way this works is we started off with uh, the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft in a nice high orbit. We did general imaging of the entire surface, created a nice mosaic. Using that mosaic, there was much cursing that occurred. Yeah. Because uh, the original plan was use the big mosaic to identify areas for follow-up detailed study. Uh, and we did the best we could, which basically was, huh, let's look at everything. And so they dropped the spacecraft OSIRIS-REx into a lower orbit, which meant that we could get more detailed images of the surface. And we looked at all those images, looking for an area that was largely free of large boulders and only had small rocks. And four potentially good enough sites were identified. And each of these sites, thankfully has craters that provide nice, fairly smooth areas. It turns out if you have a giant pile of rocks and you hit it at the right velocity with another rock, that area will get mushed down. Um, and it's those mushed down areas that look the most promising in right. many ways. Like someone just like stuck their finger, their thumb into the eye of Banu and went, and then that's where you're going to land. Yeah, so yeah. we went from looking for a roughly 80 meter across area to looking for a like 10 meter in diameter area to land our spacecraft. And when you think about how difficult it's been to land spacecraft, you know, we, we saw what happened earlier this year with Bearsheet, what just happened with India's Vikram lander. These are very difficult things in what were assumed to be the nicest landing zones you could possibly hope for. And now NASA is going to try to land in, as I said, this razor sharp danger zone. Now, one of the nice things that we have going for us that Bereshit and uh, the, is it um, Rivka, the Indian lander? Vikram. Vic Vikram. Uh, the, the thing that we have going for us that Vikram and Bandersheet didn't have going for it is a whole lot less gravity. With, with both Ryugu and Bennu, our spacecraft are kind of dropping in to bounce off the surface. So we're not planning to go in and stay. We're planning to go in and, and with OSIRIS-REx, we have what I personally have decided to describe as a very angry vacuum cleaner. We have a hose that comes down. It has a little conveyor belt like uh, bits similar to what you may see on an extension for a vacuum cleaner. And it pulls up bits of the surface that can then be collected. But it's just a touch and go. It's, mm -hmm. it's not a there to stay. And this gives us some benefits where since we're already planning to pretty much bounce, as long as we don't clip those solar panels right. on anything, we're pretty good. Yeah, With just don't snag a panel and, you know, like anyone who's ever gone fishing, you know, you you send your line down and then it gets stuck to the bottom on the hook. And and it's it's the clipping of the solar panels that is in some ways the most terrifying potentiality but we think we've figured out, we hope we figured out how to not let that happen 
And we're doing yet another round of imaging. The spacecraft has yet again been dropped into an even smaller orbit. And we are, once again, taking images of even higher resolution. And some of the members of the CosmoQuest community are going to be asked to, once again, look at these images. And they're going to be on the mission-critical path with the rest of the science team to figure out, okay, of these four regions, where in these four regions is actually the best scientifically and the safest for the mission? We have to balance both those facets. And then hopefully we'll be able to... um, well, go grab our rocks. So then let's talk about the chilling implications of this f- for the for us attempting to prevent an asteroid impact. How so traditionally the plan is, you know, you've got your your asteroid coming to hit the Earth and it's say it's going to be 10 kilometers across. That's a city killer. That's a continent ruiner. You fire the Earth's collective armada of nuclear missiles at this asteroid and you explode them on the surface. Um, What happens with your rubble pile? Well, with a rubble pile, uh, they basically just sort of fall apart and then come back together gravitationally. And I'm like, yeah, so, and? I'm I'm like imagining like the, you know, the liquid metal uh, from the Terminator, you know, the yes. right. And so you just like, you, sh- you shoot it and then it all just comes back together. And it like, it, like, sure, you've reorganized it. You've jumbled it up, but it was already jumbled. You've, you have, uh, you have shuffled a shuffled deck of cards. And, and even a bit more disturbingly, this, this, the, the way I view this in my head is it's like trying to push a leaf pile across your lawn. <laughs> You can't just push in the center. All that's going to do is make a bigger mess. One of the other more reasonable than nuclear weapons ways of deflecting an asteroid is to go plant some engines on it, fire up those engines, and give it a push in a new direction. Well, in this case, when you fire those engines, you might just be burying those engines inside of the asteroid and that is also not useful right i just imagine you you think that you put an engine on the side of this asteroid to push it around and all you've done is your your little rocket is going to be just drilling itself into the middle of the asteroid and and that's that Um, yeah yeah this is a nightmare yeah and Luckily, Bennu and Ryugu are both kind of small. Uh, Ryugu is the bigger, it's about 800 meters across, Bennu is about 500 meters. This makes them capable of just like hanging out on a nice city block. Any of you who play Wizards Unite, you could walk across the diameter if you could walk through the asteroid, which again, might be possible. Um, It's twice the distance Wizards Unite expects you to walk every single day. These are tiny. But tiny can still destroy a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. And uh, like what was um, Chelyabinsk was like about a 15 meter rock. Yeah. Right. So that's like the size of a house. These are the yeah. size of a building. Like these are these are city killers. These are these are tsunami creators. These are these are bad days for a lot of people if they hit. And because they're so fundamentally different. It also means we need to redo all of our models for things hitting the Earth. 
our models are based on a variety of different factors and generally span from, hey, we have a really metallic object coming to attack us, to, hey, we have a carbonaceous chondroid, which is basically a big pile of soil coming to attack us. But our models don't generally say, hey, there's this loosely conglomerated together, we don't know how much energy it takes to disrupt, pile of boulders coming at us. And this means we need to start rethinking, well, what do the tidal forces of the Earth do to an object like this? Is it going to string it out into a larger number of rocks that wraps its way around our planet? Is it going to explode in the atmosphere as any of the vapor and gases inside the planet suddenly undergo a phase change and explode things outward? We know Bennu has volatiles because it's throwing rocks at our spacecraft. Yes. This this changes how we have to consider in, incoming rocks, essentially. Yeah. Well, then let's talk about the good news. Which is, you mentioned volatiles, it is, you know, for the for our bold future of living in space and attempting to mine asteroids, it feels like this got a lot easier. You no longer need to hard rock drill into the side of a gigantic asteroid. You really just have to scoop and pick stuff up and get it off into space. And you can find volatiles mixed in with the boulders that you can use for all kinds of purposes. This seems like good news for our future of space mining and, and resource utilization. And and especially with Ryugu, it tells us that the kinds of materials that we normally would have expected to see in the center of an asteroid might instead be on its surface. There, there are two main models for understanding Ryugu. When you look at Ryugu, it, it has boulders of two very different colors that are mixed together. And the thinking is that either something came along and clobbered Ryugu and caused a differentiated asteroid, an asteroid that has a, had a different um, structure on the center and a different structure on the outside to get knocked apart and essentially get turned inside out a bit with some of the former interior materials now being turn into boulders on the surface. Or Ryugu is two different asteroids that clobbered each other and mutually came back together to form a new object, again, with these two different colored materials. In either way, you're finding the same stuff on the surface as we presume you'd find on the inside. So you don't have to worry about different layers of strata containing different materials. It's all right there on the surface. Now with Bennu, we still don't know all of the details. Bennu has this really weird, super shiny stuff scattered in dribs and drabs all over the surface. And we're still trying to figure out what this stuff is. And so again, here you have multiple compositions mixed together on the surface and because Bennu throws rocks, proof of volatiles that can melt and there's there's your potential fuel, your potential water, all right on the surface. So for those of you who are uh, watching from home, when will we see the next big moment in the, in the OSIRIS-REx mission? What's the next big I mean they, they've got to collect that sample so when's that gonna happen right so 
I would love to be able to say we are going to be able to announce the exact places where we're going to go and collect those samples next week, in three weeks, in four weeks. Um, we had a beautiful mission timeline. We really, really did. Um, and and the actual asteroid is so much harder to figure out. Um, so I I can't tell you. So we don't precisely. know. They, well, like when they've looked at the next round of pictures, when they figured a place that they think is safe, they'll announce when they're going to make that attempt. And it'll happen yeah. sometime in the future. It might, we, probably not tomorrow, and no, probably not 100 years from currently, now. we're looking at this winter. We're looking at December, right. probably. Yeah. But I'm just going to go with our timeline kind of got thrown out the window. And we're doing, we're doing okay. We're doing okay. Yeah. But... Well, this object is so much more complicated than anything we imagined, and we're holding to this orbit at this time, this orbit at this time. But the decision-making processes are taking extra time when they need to. Yeah. Well, good luck, everyone working with the mission, and good luck, OSIRIS-REx. We watched you launch. Now we want to watch you collect that sample and return safely home. Pamela, do you have some names for us this week? I, I do. And uh, the people I'm going to list are people who are supporting us over on patreon.com slash astronomycast. You are the people that really allow us to be functional in producing all of this content. Um, Susie gets paid thanks to you. And when we need to, this is what allows us to travel to things like the OSIRIS-REx takeoff. Um, so this week, I would like to thank... Sorry, scrolling. This week, I would like to thank Les Howard, Paul Jarman, Joss Cunningham, Emily Patterson, Dana Nori, Joseph Hoy, Frederick Hagnikvam Jensen, Kjartan Sfari, Ed, <laughs> Gordon Dewey, Bill Hamilton, Frank Tippin, Greg Thorwald, Richard Riviera, Alexis, Thomas Svetstrup, and Stephen Shewater. Thank you so much, Pamela. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Astronomy Cast, a nonprofit resource provided by the Planetary Science Institute, Fraser Kane, and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at Astronomy Cast. You can email us at info at astronomycast.com. Tweet us at AstronomyCast, like us on Facebook, and watch us on YouTube. We record our show live on YouTube every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific, or 1900 UTC. Our intro music was provided by David Joseph Wesley. The outro music is by Travis Searle, and the show was edited by Susie Murph.